0: the beyond the studio podcast and you're listening to season two beyond the studio west coast edition i'm amanda adams and i'm nicole muller and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist here we'll share honest
1: conversations with artists makers and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist-in-Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode's brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive's an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building
0: your art career now on today's episode we will be interviewing emily gerard from seattle thank you
2: so much for being on the show Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure.
0: Would you mind just starting out by describing your work for any listeners that don't know what it's like um, and just walking us through your journey thus far as an artist?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am primarily a painter, though I kind of always say painter, drawer, printmaker, anything in kind of the two dimensional realm. I am a Northwest painter. Uh, which means that I love the gray and the gloom and the subtle kind of earthy colors. I, my work kind of looks like abstract landscapes if you were to just kind of describe it, but it actually has its written figure drawing. And my goal is in my painting is to present these kind of inanimate forms of rocks, wall-like deteriorating forms in a way that elicits kind of empathy, that causes them to shift and move and look like a figure. That's the through line for my work. So although my processes and my mediums kind of change, that would be the kind of core element of my work.
1: And did you grow up in the Seattle area?
2: I didn't. As my family likes to kind of say, we're from everywhere and nowhere in particular. My parents are cable splicers. And so we moved around a lot growing up. They owned their own business called Wedlawn Incorporated, which stands for work every day for little or nothing. (laughs) They're not artists, they're business owners, like their own business owners have kind of a connection to being an artist. So kind of work as identity made like that philosophy Mm. made being an artist seem very natural to me. So it sounds like you moved around a lot through that as a kid. Yeah. And so kind of the needle landed when I was in in Spokane, Washington. So my parents do live in Washington State, which kind of brought me out here um, after RISD. And uh, I went to Rhode Island School of Design. I had gone to high school in eastern Washington. My dad kept moving for work and my mother kind of decided she wanted to uh, stop shifting every few years. And so he kept moving and we just kind of stayed in that area. And I really kind of associated and defined myself by this space we used to go to the peninsula which is on the west side of Washington state you know six hours from where the dry desert that I was living in and I just immediately kind of connected to this place we would come out camping in western Washington and I could just feel like everything in me just kind of relax and feel like I kind of belonged here so after school I came back out here with Uh, my husband and moved to Seattle. I've always been kind of focused on doing artwork. I'm pretty one sided. And so after high school, I applied to Rhode Island School of Design and went there. And I loved it. So Rhode Island School of Design is a four year art college. So it's completely art centric and it's very hard. Mm -hmm. I had heard that it was the hardest school to get into whether it is or not. And decided that's where I was gonna go. And
0: were they doing the uh, the bike drawing submission at the time? <laughs> they were.
2: <laughs> I think they always have done that silly bike drawing submission. I started my drawing when I was uh, my bike drawings when I was a freshman in high school. I was like, I'd heard about it, and I like just like drew bikes and drew bikes and drew bikes. I, you know, like <laughs> you're like, I gotta practice. I'm gonna this. get these bikes down. And I mean, the the truth is that like. You know, in hindsight, they propose this idea of a bike and then look to see your creativity in approaching it. But, you know, I, I didn't come from an art background. I that, I just knew I wanted to make things and wanted to draw. And so I was just like, I'm going to get every single little spoke. And I'm going <laughs> like, to like, I'm going to show that I can really draw this bike. For me, both kind of connected with my family and just kind of deep inside me is this idea that like, Value is based on work and time, and that was true when I was young, that's true to my family and how they kind of live their life, and it's still kind of an integral part of who I am as my studio practice, and um, even my kind of teaching philosophy, I'm a teacher, that's my main form of income. And that is very much Mm -hmm. reflected in my teaching curriculum. So, like, I went to RISD, and like, I would talk to my parents every week, and I'd be like, "I am spending ten hours a night on my homework. I haven't slept in weeks. I don't bathe. I do (laughs) nothing but like, I haven't eaten food in days." And I was just like boasting beyond belief. Like, all I would talk about. My family is known for its exaggerations. And so, you know, if I spent six hours on my homework, it was, I have, I spend 30 hours on my homework and on and on and on that like big, big exaggeration. And they, I mean, that's what they understood. And yeah, they've always been very, very supportive of my choices, because I think it makes sense to them in that sense that your job is your identity.
0: Yeah, I,
2: I relate to that
0: so much, because I definitely got my like, mild workaholic <laughs> behaviors from my dad uh who was also his own boss and uh and I definitely will go to him and I'm like I've been working so hard like you should be so
2: proud of me <laughs> right right and they are like well I you know my my parents are like 65 years old and they still pull all nighters like oh my god you know like I just remember like talking to my mom on my phone being like Why? Why did you not sleep last night? (laughs) Why? Why have you worked all night on knitting? (laughs) Yeah,
1: for some people, I think it's just in their nature, right? It's just really woven into who they are.
2: Yeah, totally. That work ethic. Yeah, it's it, it is who they are. It's how they define they kind of take everything and make it that. And so that kind of almost family competitiveness, like I'm working harder, no, you're working harder and (laughs) you're doing this and I'm doing that. I and that's just like that's just so deep. That's just so deep in me. And it kind of it has shaped both my practice and a lot of my choices throughout my career you know, I majored in illustration because the classes seemed harder. Um, I had no interest in being an illustrator. I didn't really understand what it would be to be a painter. Like, I had no frame of reference for what that could look like or be. But the illustration department had very structured classes, like painting one, painting two, painting three, painting four, as opposed to this idea that you, like, go to your studio and work, which is actually how I live my (laughs) life now. But, you know, 19, that just... I, I had no frame of reference to understand what that was. So I went to school, I wanted to learn concrete skills. I majored in the, the two-dimensional major that had those concrete skills. And it always occurred to me that, you know, I had always been interested also in teaching. I tutored when I was in high school. I spent the summers teaching classes in math. My parents own their own business. So mostly we, you know, when you are the Child of somebody who owns their own business, you always have a job, right?
0: Yeah. Um, Employee of that business, whether you like it or not.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, but I would also do like tutoring and teach math, um, kind of run um, summer programs, and I also TA'd the whole time, or from my sophomore year on at RISD. So. Um, I worked with a bunch of different kind of teachers. That was a pretty big part of my experience there. I think at one semester, I was TAing for three classes, which meant I was taking as many classes as I was TAing for. So my time was like pretty much <laughs> uh-huh. sp- split 50-50 TAing. And that was just, it's hard to explain my my passion for teaching. It feels almost even more elusive and kind of like primal than even making work like almost being an artist I kind of like understand and can like logically approach but this kind of like primal teaching gut yeah it's it's interesting I can kind of like just hone in and just become obsessed with a class so that's been kind of a big part of who I am
1: Yeah, and did you start teaching immediately after you graduated um, from
2: RISD when you moved to Washington? So, yes, I did. Uh, So Tim, my husband, I met my husband at school. He's an artist as well. Um, He was also in illustration. We needed a place to move. My parents were in eastern Washington. He's from Connecticut, but he didn't really care where he lived, and he actually wasn't too interested in where he was from so it was pretty much up to me and so we settled on Seattle in hindsight fairly naively I was like okay I'll apply to University of Washington go to graduate school there in painting because their graduate students teach and to teach you have a college level you have to have a master's and so mm-hmm. I'll, uh, i I kind of was just like I'll go there Um, if you teach while you're in school. So at University of Washington, the foundation classes are taught by the graduate students. And so the drawing classes, um, figure drawing classes, a lot of um, the painting classes, no, but um, those beginning classes are all taught by the graduate students. So I was like, I'll go there, I'll teach in their program. I'll get my master's so that I can teach. And when you teach there, you, go to school for free and you get a stipend. Wow that's great. Yeah so I applied. Best way to get that in degree. <laughs> and I got teaching positions while I was there. The first quarter you have to TA with another faculty mm-hmm. and then after that you're, you can qualify for teaching and I taught the whole time I was there after that. So yeah I kind of went to it pretty quickly. You know a lot changed for me while I was in school and it's kind of this thing that You know gets said i'm sure you've heard it a bunch of times you know you're very often warned the dangers of signing with a commercial gallery too quickly that that's kind of a common theme that you should let your work mature and that was something that was said over and over again and i kind of translated that into teaching you know as you can kind of tell i had gone to like elementary school, high school, college, graduate school, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun and was very involved in teaching and I kind of graduated in 2004 with a master's loving teaching having taught pretty consistently and realizing I had always just been a student teaching something Somebody else had taught me similarly to that idea of the danger of signing too quickly with a commercial gallery I always felt kind of a responsibility to my students I couldn't just like go from being a student to then just regurgitating to my students something somebody else had taught to me and I needed to figure out who I wanted to be as a teacher. So I actually, when I graduated, didn't apply for teaching positions, which was weird because that was like, it wasn't that weird, but it was what, you know, we were all kind of doing. We graduate, you start applying for positions. And even though I knew I wanted to be a teacher, I was decided to just step away from the academic life for a bit because it was just everything. So I got a job in an art store, which meant I had a fifty percent discount on art supplies. Hey. And yeah, it was amazing and minimum wage, <laughs> which was less, less amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Less amazing. <laughs> <Right, right. laughs> less amazing. And then you just kinda of spend it where you make it. Um yeah. make it where you spend yeah. it. And um painted in the evening and weekends. My husband and I love Seattle. We adore it. Um, we fell in love with it as soon as we moved out here, we've lived here for, um, since 2002 and we just don't want to leave, but that has like pros and cons. When we moved out here, it was affordable. It's not anymore. Um, like most places. And it also doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of schools to teach at. So it's art community is amazing and wonderful but it's hard to make a living doing it and there's not a lot of people who buy work here and there isn't a lot of schools to teach at so we're we've always been kind of like stuck between this thing where we absolutely love living here and we've made a choice to live here but then we also know our uh, for myself my kind of profession isn't here so we've had to kind of change like how we decide to to navigate that. Luckily, Tim kind of figured out early on, he was an illustration and he was working at a grocery store and there had always been a goal that like, I would get a job and I would support us through my teaching. And then he could work on his illustration. And when that kind of, when we kind of settled on Seattle and kind of decided that we loved it, he decided to go back to night, go back to school at night. Uh, taking night classes in video game art and 3D modeling. And he was pretty strategic about it. He looked at job sites and kind of figured out what kind of positions were hiring. And he noticed that environment artists were being hired more than concept or... Uh, character which are kind of a little bit more in line with what he might have wanted to do or what he felt his skills were. But he realized that if he wanted a job they were hiring a lot more environment artists so he shifted his portfolio and he kind of just took on that. He got an internship with a small company and there are a lot of video game companies out here and so that also has kind of brought us to this place. About 10 years ago he kind of made a shift and decided that, that would be his focus. That combined with teaching and showing is how we kind of solidify our, our space in here. It was kind of wonderful to watch him do that. It was really kind of nice. He's, as I said, he's an artist as well. He's still, you know, moving completely to the digital. He kind of still does a lot of printmaking, um, which is another kind of big part of my studio practice as well.
0: I feel like it's so easy to underestimate the need to be strategic when you plan on being a quote unquote professional artist and just mm-hmm. how much is involved with figuring out how to get the job you want or create the job you want and it's really nice to hear you mention that because it's I know when I went to school I like I didn't have a plan I was like I want to be an artist but that's vague it's so and vague. <laughs> it can it can look so many different ways and it still is developing and I'm sure it will change for the rest of my life but it's so it's so necessary to have some kind of a plan.
2: <laughs> it's been really kind of wonderful watching him kind of develop and figure that out. And it's been very inspiring. You know, one of the kind of luckiest things in my life is being married to another artist, an artist who like knows that I can go into my studio for hours on end without, you know, I think we can have partners who might, verbally support what we do it might be interested in what we do but kind of living your life with somebody who like really supports what you do an advocate like a really kind of big advocate um is pretty intense because there's a lot of like sacrifices i mean like and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like understanding that like we have a three-year-old daughter and so if i am going to be out in my studio working at night For a deadline for a commission for grading for teaching for all of these things then you know that means like he's on putting her to bed which might be a screaming hour fight (laughs) and that's just like those choices that we make like the person who's willing to like put a a monster to bed (laughs) <laughs> while, while, you're sit- <laughs> while you're sitting in your studio co- contemplating like marks on a piece of paper is a kind of a rare advocate and kind of knowing that and kind of swapping that back and forth. To do this, there there's that like, you know, every night to stay on top of his profession and field, he works every evening on like kind of updating his computer skills. Just like I spend my evening looking up grants and those kinds of things or being in my studio so i think that's really helped us kind of i think that's kind of fundamental to how we've been able to do this
0: have you noticed and i'm i'm sure it's definitely brought some shift but uh how how is it trying to balance a studio practice and having a, a young monster in the house <laughs> um, well,
2: I kind of think of my life as like kind of before having a kid and after having a kid, <laughs> she's going to be three next month. And I think it's been, am- it has been amazing. I should have done this. I mean, we've been together well, since we were 18 and, um, and I'm almost 40. So a long time and um so we had a kid kind of late and we should have done this a long time ago i think we kept thinking like okay we'll get our work done we'll get our work done we'll figure out you know i'll get one more gallery Mm, i'll do this and then i'll you know and then we're just like all right this is this is going on too long with the kind of acknowledgement that there is a stigma attached to a mom artist or a woman who decides to be a parent as well um, which i have noticed i was surprised i have noticed that mm. it's subtle sometimes and then it's just in your face like well you wouldn't apply for that anyway because you're a mom and i'm like mm, still need a grant <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> still need to like fund my studio but okay i like to kind of talk about motherhood as like the professional development that I've had since being a mother and it's pretty intense you learn there are so many things that I'm better at in the last three years than I was you know part of being a studio artist who makes process the core of her work means that you can kind of like I look back at some of the work and like oh my goodness what do you mean you spend 40 hours doing that one like small task and it was important and it was crucial and i i felt it was necessary but i am much more like you know i go to my studio if i have 10 minutes i go to my studio if i have you know an hour versus i think before you know i could have been like okay well i'm teaching in the afternoon so i only have four hours that's not enough time to really dive into my studio. Maybe I'll just prep and grade. Whereas I'm like, four hours, that's luxury. Of course I would go. I'll I'll go to my studio if I have 20 minutes. I mean, I'm sketchy (laughs) waiting for my daughter if I show up to her school too early. I mean, it's just like, if you're gonna do it, you gotta do it. And so that has been great. Talking about that word strategic, which I think you end up having to kind of do, I say no to things that are not, that I never would have said no to. Friends of mine will describe my like interest in teaching as kind of addictive, meaning that I will say yes or would have said yes to every single teaching position that showed up on my, that was offered uh-huh. to me. So, I mean, I've gotten myself into like six class, six college classes at a time type deal. 36 hours teaching hours, kind of like crazy, crazy, crazy schedules teaching at Yeah, three not schools. even
0: factoring, preparing for these classes. <laughs>
2: preparing, grading, meeting with the students. Um, you know, at the time, I think I was teaching it was about five classes, one quarter, and two of the classes were in Bellingham, which I live in Seattle, and Bellingham is three hours away. <laughs> wow. And so, I mean, like, and that's just stupid. They didn't even pay that well. So I, I recently, you know, kind of being offered positions and so much more early on I used to just say yes what's the class I'll, I'll take it I'll take it I'll take it right like I'll make this work somehow I'll make this work and so I found myself being like oh that sounds really interesting how much does it pay okay and then like actually kind of being like mm, I could probably sell two paintings for that same price of teaching this and kind of being a lot more clear of like once I pay for my childcare and I pay for this and that and that um, no Yes, that would be, you know, teaching at that school would be another line on my resume. I've never taught at that school. But making those like hard choices of saying no to things because
1: mm-hmm.
2: they just, since having it, I'm a lot smarter on what I say yes to and a lot more kind of like clear as to like what I will say yes to. Um, so that's huge.
1: This episode's presented with support from Superfine Art Fair. How can you build higher sales and long-term collectors through accessible art? Through its transparent, accessible, and friendly approach Superfine specializes in providing a bridge for the art curious to become full-fledged art collectors. And the results show, with more than $1.5 million in art sales to date and the most rapidly growing art fair platform in the country, Superfine fairs represent the future of the art market, a place where anyone can become a collector and artists and galleries reap the rewards. Ready to apply? Applications for Superfine LA have been extended until January 31st and applications are now available for Superfine NYC and Superfine DC. Booth space is limited, so we encourage you to apply now. To apply, simply visit www.superfine.world/exhibit. That's slash exhibit I think that's an important lesson that that all artists can really walk away with, whatever stage of life you're at, is to really become clear and realistic about what you need to live off of and what it may take for you to say yes to a project because I think that, you know, I'm guilty of this. It's just anything that comes up you view as as an opportunity and you want to say yes to it and, you know, you just kind of figure out how to make it work and, and make it happen. But I think that in the long term that may not be in service of your ability to make a living off of your work or to support yourself or your family or you know whatever the sort of larger goal is and so it's important to keep that in mind because I feel like you know as artists we're constantly having to be our own advocate and kind of battle against this undervaluing of our work or maybe asked to provide our own quotes for things and met with a lot of negotiations. And I mean, I can just think of so many examples where yeah. pricing out your, your work or your skills or knowing what you need and being confident and comfortable asking for that um, is a really hard thing to develop. Mm-hmm. I've heard that that, is, that can be a starting point is, is getting really clear about what you need to to live and to thrive in your life, and then breaking that down to okay, what would I need to say yes to this teaching gig? And then being able to compare that to to realize, well, if I were to sell two paintings, this would equate to the same amount of money that I'd be making through this teaching job, but I wouldn't have this six hour commute to make, <laughs> yeah. And that's costing me time and money. And so just weighing all of those things against each other, I feel like is, is a really great example of being strategic about what you do say yes to. And I know that I need to put that into practice more so that, again, you're not just taking everything that comes your way, but you are really
2: making progress. Yeah. And at some point, you start kind of looking back at these like small little bits of experience. And I I feel like it's almost like early on when you're just starting, you say yes to everything so that you can kind of really see if it works, see if that does. I mean, I think of shows that in hindsight were just ludicrous that I said yes to. But I, (laughs) you know, like crazy you know a convention that's coming to a city that asks you to hang their work and they're not going to give you any money but they won't take a commission and you realize that you've hung their your work in a space that's not lit <laughs> that has no signage
1: right it's like hindsight's always 20 20, yeah and
2: afterwards you you, they you they you realize that they lost your work and they like they've left and they don't even like care that they've lost like your work and you're like you spend like days hustling and they've thrown it in a closet um those kinds of things (sighs) and so you're kind of like okay so I will never say yes to those kinds of pop-up shows or if i do say Mm -hmm. yes i will have like all these kind of things in place i kind of recently was invited to give a talk at a school um kind of similar topic actually professional development and my response was okay well that sounds great do you have a stipend are you going to pay me for me to come and talk to you about this. And I don't think I would have done that before, but most schools do have a little bit of money, a little bit of stipend. And I think that like knowing when you can say, ask for more money, knowing how, when somebody kind of approaches you as a fine artist, I get kind of approached by interior designers quite a bit. I think we, you know, one always does. And Mm -hmm. kind of knowing um, like the steps to proceed, like, okay, well, these are my prices. Do you have a budget for it? asking the interior designers for references to other galleries that they've worked with Oh yeah I, I think there have been moments where like you know an interior designer would like contact me and I'd be like okay sure how do I get my image to you so that you can put me mm-hmm. in your proposal and how's the commission work and now it's kind of like okay this is my budget okay we're, you're still on board okay I now I'd like to like talk with other. You know, give me references of three galleries who you've worked with that is actually really useful information. And sometimes you'll talk to another gallery and you'll be like, have you worked with this client? And they'll be like, yeah, they kind of always lowball you. They always do this. They tend to not fall through. Just be warned. And you're kind of like, OK, well, you can still work with them, but you go into it with this kind of knowing what you can ask and knowing that you can ask for kind of that supportive material and that um i think that's kind of been horrible to learn lessons but you know invaluable hopefully one step at a time
1: yeah you're right there's no substitute for a lived experience um but also i think that's a great note to ask others and to learn from their experiences and to let that inform
2: your own decision-making too. And to talk to other artists about it, I think community is crucial. I mean, painting is lonely. It is a lonely, lonely work. And when I first graduated from school, my community was just my fellow students. And so that process of like realizing how important having other artists and talking to other artists and kind of the kind of solidarity, which is what's kind of always drawn me to printmaking. And kind of being involved in um, organizations like Seattle Print Arts. And even though I I am a painter, I I always kind of return to printmaking again and again because it has that community. That I think is crucial. So having, because you face a massive amount of rejection, as you guys well know, in every kind of form. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of like openly talking to people about that rejection. Just like with parenting, like, where I know there's a stigma associated with being a mom artist. That kind of makes me talk about it more. Yeah. Sit me in a room at any kind of lecture, anything I like talk about being a parent constantly. Because I think the only way to kind of realize that we, we do this and that it's crucial and it's valuable is to talk about it a lot. The same thing, kind of like talking about what it feels like to have work returned and <laughs> after yep. months from a gallery and like how crushing that is to realize that somebody's lived with your work and then returns it it's humiliating and it's embarrassing but once you like tell one person that story then they're like oh yeah that's happened to me or well this is what's happened this horrible thing has happened to me and you can be like yeah but yeah you know like support each other and just kind of like openly um talk about our vulnerabilities yeah it makes
0: such a big difference I know so I'm in the like more maker side of the artist world um, and I do a lot of like craft shows and markets and whatnot I always am talking to fellow artists at these events because they're doing events I've never heard of and they can give me the lowdown on like what's worth it what's not worth it and it's so helpful to to share those experiences with other artists because like there was a show that I had been doing for several years and then I got rejected to be in it this year and I was like what happened why don't you like me anymore what did I do and then I talked to another artist who is so incredible like her work is absolutely phenomenal and I figured that she must have been doing that event as long as I had and she was like oh yeah I just got in for the first time and I'm like what What? like like, (laughs) she was like yeah I got rejected like six years in a row and I was like okay this is not personal at all this they're just on some (laughs) rotation trying to 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 cover you know as many people as they can and it it just helps so much to know that like okay we're all getting rejected it's not personal at all there's just so many people and so few opportunities and so you just roll with the punches and take what you can get and try not to take it too personally when you get rejected because it's not about you. It's just... It yeah, happens.
2: I, it, and it's... I think kind of like sitting on a judging panel is like if anybody... There are things that you can do that you can volunteer your time to mm-hmm. that I think are really, really like big that really help give perspective. And, you know, there's some things that are worth our time. Some things are not worth our time. I think like jurying a own award or a show is like so useful because you kind of like realize how arbitrary it can kind of feel mm-hmm. you know two or three people might be looking at 400 applications a thousand applications and you know there might be three kind of female abstract figurative painters and the first one gets kind of put aside the second one gets aside the third one if you're that third one it just gets like you know okay well we've already got two of those you know like and it's not like a value judgment on like which of those three is best that is how words awards kind of get orchestrated and so being careful not to also do the jealous thing I was pretty anti-social media for a really long time just because it doesn't work because it was like Facebook and I can't stand Facebook just it just I don't like the way it looks and the way it organizes information (laughs) I like I couldn't even see the content it was just like just the way it visually looked on the page bugged me pretty into Instagram and I'm I spend way too many hours scrolling and clicking and thinking <laughs> about it and I mean I'm I mean it's practically run on jealousy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know I mean <laughs> like I think that's like somewhere <laughs> deep in its ag- algorithm is like a gel je- a large percentage of it is like jealousy it's like a jealousy g- generator and I think that <laughs> like gen- jealousy and rejection and then applying and like that kind of perspective form this like really deadly kind of like triangle where you you start to find yourself being like oh they got this thing Hmm." or this person was on this jury that rejected me so I shouldn't apply for this well they don't even know who you were probably and they probably looked at 500 things they wouldn't make like a value judgment they just like had to pick five people (laughs) yeah and I think once you like let the jealousy cloud you and I remind myself of this all the time my screensaver on my phone is no longer a cute picture of my daughter but just like words that I've typed don't be jealous so that I don't open my phone (laughs) and like hit Instagram and be like oh they're so much more productive than me oh they made so many better drawings their sketch looks books look so much better I should make my sketch look better now clear clear my brain because I think you can't see who you are when you're jealous like a lot of times like you know I've had conversations with people where a friend of mine turned to me one time and was like you get all these awards our work is the same you only get them because you're a girl and because I'm a guy I don't get things and if I was a girl I'd get all the awards that you get as well oh (laughs) and I had to be kind of like okay um first of all I don't get a lot of awards but Grass is always greener, (laughs) you know. Yeah. And second, our work is actually very, very different. Because he was so jealous, he couldn't see how our work was different, which means he couldn't see what he could improve in his work, if my work was better, or he couldn't see where his work would belong. And so he was applying for the wrong things. Yeah. And so I try to think about that, like when I feel my jealousy, like, oh, they did this, well, maybe their work is better for that. Maybe they worked harder than me. Maybe they deserve that award. (laughs) Maybe I just can't see who I am.
1: Today's episode is supported by Superfine Art Fair. Do you ever feel like you're creating great art but not selling enough of it? Well, you're not alone. Superfine provides a hack into an evergreen, emerging art market for independent artists and galleries. With affordably priced booth space and annual fairs in LA, New York, Washington, DC, and more markets each year, Superfine's a way to level up your art business year-round. Applications for Superfine LA have been extended to January 31st, and applications are available for Superfine NYC and Superfine DC. Apply at www.superfine.com www.superfine.world/exhibit. That's www.superfine.world/exhibit. On the note of um, finding opportunities for your work, I was wondering if you could talk about the criteria that you use when looking for opportunities or things to apply to, just thinking about that idea of fit and finding the right spaces for your work. How would you say that you've
2: gone about or go about doing that? So I think community becomes a big part of it. So before I talked about specific examples, I think it it comes back to kind of also having community, going to other people's studios, sharing opportunities with them. So looking looking at sites like cafe, and whenever you see a site or a call for artists or you look at your local... Uh, museums and galleries and you see calls for artists to take the initiative to forward those out to everybody, to your friends, because I think that that actually helps quite a bit. It is true that you get opportunities if you're honest with yourself and you look at the opportunities that you've had, you owe somebody those opportunities. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that a lot of the things that you get, whether it's who a jury is, And they give you a slight edge means that you you owe something to your community for those opportunities. And so you need to share those opportunities. And at every point, you need to share those opportunities. So even if I I think a lot of artists that I know will put off, oh, I haven't gotten enough opportunities to then share them with people. Well, you can always say that. Mm -hmm. So even when I was like, you know, working at an art supply store, renting at a print shop, you know, I would invite people to do group shows with me. You know, I would look around and say, oh, maybe you could do this or maybe you could do that. So I think that kind of helps in kind of being open with that. And then just applying to, you know, starting off with all the kind of your local. I don't apply to everything. I am a little guilty of doing that thing that they say women do for jobs where I <laughs> look if I don't meet every single criteria, I do tend to not apply. Mm-hmm. But I do apply for all my kind of local And I don't take it personally when I don't get in, which I very rarely do. And I look for opportunities to kind of use whatever little thing I have to kind of move to the next thing so it might be I got lucky and applied for the Betty Bowen um, which is an award given out by the Seattle Art Museum in 2006 I was a finalist and as soon as that kind of happened and I was a finalist I kind of like looked around and was like okay well I'll contact this gallery And, and I got a small award so i was giving a lecture and i contacted several galleries and invited them to come see the talk i mean they knew what i was doing i was asking them to be interested in me yeah but letting those little things kind of grow
1: yeah writing the momentum off of those little wins to help generate new opportunities
2: and then bringing somebody else with you like any little experience that you gain kind of sharing it so i've done a lot of Like interviews for grants that I haven't gotten and studio visits and I can list all the things I've done wrong and so whenever I know anybody who is a finalist on those grants I share like these are all the things I did wrong do you want me to come to your studio and look at your stuff for you cuz I don't want you to go through that again and wow, that's so generous to really set them up for success and, and then being honest that somebody else did that for me, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, I think it's really easy to think that because especially painter, uh, being a painter, I go into my studio and make my work. I think it's the work that's doing this. But having done a lot of printmaking having associated with a lot of printmakers have associated with a lot of different teaching organizations the philosophy in those communities is like community is like take care of everybody build Mm -hmm. make portfolios where we all kind of make work and apply together and kind of trying to do that I do do the kind of traditional path of like representation by a gallery and I really like that relationship like I'm not very good at negotiating prices with my work I'm not good at completing sales and so understanding that I give a gallery fifty percent for that is pretty crucial to me and kind of knowing what my own limitations are. Francine Setter's gallery started representing me back in two thousand six. I contacted them and they were one of the people who were interested and after I became a Betty Bone finalist. I showed with her until she closed and She was kind of like an established gallery, but kind of wonderful. Like she was completely hands off. She let me do whatever I wanted. Um, She didn't dictate what my work was and kind of understanding that that meant maybe the sales weren't as great because galleries that have a more kind of heavy hand tend to sell a little bit better. That just is kind of reality, but I wasn't interested in going that path. I was lucky enough to kind of like show with her for kind of a while until she closed and then after that, I kind of realized that I wanted to show with galleries that I really wanted to give them my 50%, like that me giving them, I, me making a sale and giving them 50% was doing something really special mm-hmm. for myself and for for them, that we had this like a uh, relationship. I'm with a gallery right now called Bridge Productions, uh, run by Sharon Arnold, and I really kind of believe in the shows she puts on and the work that she does. She has the artist that she represents, and then she puts on a lot of other really kind of important shows. And I like the fact that my 50% goes to help support that, that 50% of my sales go to support that. So even though I'm kind of an abstract painter who makes kind of quiet paintings, I can help support more um, politically, socially conscious shows. And that is really crucial to me. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it, too, that by
1: gaining success on behalf of the gallery that you're working with helps to support all the other other artists involved, and that sort of by way of that, you're supporting those artists
2: and their work by all being a part of this
1: gallery together.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that sense of community and that sense of, like, you just give all your knowledge without competitiveness to somebody is what teaching is about, and I mean, that's why I like to teach, and I'm not always successful in my work to do that. I mean, I'm as petty and jealous and competitive as every human being who ever had an Instagram account, but (laughs) I, like, at least try... Yeah, we're all human. Right? But I think that's a really beautiful
1: perspective to, to strive for, to position yourself as a giver within your community in whatever way that looks like and to realize that you have... This power to extend opportunities for others at whatever stage of life and work you're at even if that means being proactive about you know seeing an opportunity that someone you know might be a great fit for and just sending that link over saying hey I saw this and I thought mm-hmm. you, know, you should apply and I mean those little things I think are easy to to dismiss or just not to do because they are so small but realizing that that can have a really big impact um, for another artist and that the same is true for if someone forwards something to you that you otherwise wouldn't have known about and you apply and you end up getting that opportunity I mean that person was really crucial for you and
2: yeah, totally. So just
1: recognizing that is so important. And I love how much you speak about just being generous and um, making that a priority, um even in in talking about opportunities that are coming to you, sort of flipping that around and then instead asking yourself, well, what ways can I extend opportunities to
2: others? There are so many amazing uh, role models for that who I keep kind of like I call it like, different people guardrails in my life even if I'm like kind of only know them from a distance so one guardrail is the person who suggested that they would have all the same opportunities if they just didn't have a penis um, they're a guardrail for how, like, <laughs> jealousy can, like, cause you to be blinded by your own work. And yeah. somebody, um, like, you were mentioning that you're interviewing uh, Juan Alonso for um, this podcast. He's another guardrail. His commitment to other artists and his ability to put that into words and to kind of point to other artists is like mm-hmm. a role model. So he is a role model. Um, Amanda Knowles, who is kind of one of these, like, takes care of her students above and beyond, and as a printmaker, goes to every single lecture, goes to every single art opening, and sees that as crucial to her studio practice and understanding studio practice is another guard, guardrail. Like, you know, you kind of define yourself by these people, both kind of negative, like I don't want to go there and like, aspirational, I like want to head and be as good as them. And of course, there's, you know, we all have artistic goals. But I think it's also important to have emotional guardrails or emotional examples of how to kind of navigate through this because it can feel like you're making it up as you go you don't really actually know when you should say yes to an opportunity or no to an opportunity or like how do i deal with the fact that i've had this massive rejection some rejections are just you apply and you don't get in who cares and some become very personal when they Mm -hmm. (laughs) they spell it out (laughs) for you why you were rejected and they make it unequivocal we just don't like you. No. We just don't like you. <laughs> Emoji wink. <laughs> you know? Well, there's that spiral
1: that's so easy to go down if you don't create that frame of reference for yourself, which mm-hmm. sounds like mm-hmm. you're describing is is giving yourself other points of view and perspectives to, to sort of base th- that feeling off of. And I mean, that's how you prevent yourself from just going down that hole of I'm the worst and it's all mm-hmm. very personal and...
2: Mm -hmm. Which gets so into your studio. For some people, there's nothing as unproductive as pity for yourself. And that's why I think to kind of go back to, like, why being a parent is a really great professional development skill, um, so we should all breed so that we can be better at (laughs) this, is that, uh, you know, it kind of keeps things in perspective. Like, all right, Mm -hmm. just you got two hours, you finally got her to take a a nap. (laughs) Like, you know, get off Instagram. This is your only chance. And like, that kind of keeps things really, really clear. And stamina, you know, I thought I worked hard. No, no, I did not work hard (laughs) until, (laughs) until I had a child. And also, I think it kind of like how disconnected reality is from what it is to be a parent. Like I was not prepared to have a even though I'm an older sister of two kids I just didn't understand what it was was really interesting to kind of understand how certain stories are not in the general public
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I somehow didn't know the ins and outs of like breast pumping and like how I'm supposed to have to like find a place to pump at a school while my students (laughs) are like (laughs) in rooms that all have windows (laughs) in adjunct hustle where you don't have an office like I'm gonna have to like take off my shirt and like do this put this contraption on my breast in my place of work with my students around like I really was like wow this is not something that people talk about and complain about like every single day (laughs) like
0: have you seen the Ali Wong stand up I think it's Oh, I, was just I can't remember. About that. I can't <laughs> you remember told me which about it, one. Amanda.
1: I watched it. It was so funny. I haven't funny. seen this.
0: So she has two standups. They're, I think they're both on Netflix. Um, I can't remember. She basically talks about all the weird shit that happens to your body when you become a mom she's like no one tells you you can have blocked milk ducts and that you have to hire someone to come (laughs) unblock it and like no one told you that you have to wear this like crazy underwear after you've had a baby because your body's
2: not done yet (laughs) right or every time you run up the stairs you're gonna pee yourself in your pants like what (laughs) like
0: come on I'll have to confirm the name of that, but I can send it to you. But there's also, I think Vox and Netflix started like a little mini docu series called Explained, and one of them is all about the like the gender pay gap, and they're talking about how it's really not just a gender pay gap, it's really a mom tax <laughs> because women without children are much less affected by this pay gap than mothers because Our society is like, oh, you're a mom. You should be home with the kids and let your husband go do the job and go make the money. And
2: it's pretty intense. The idea that this was so prevalent and so obvious and our society is so not set up to do this really base natural thing, which is like continue the line of species. We've like (laughs) created societies that don't support a very primal evolutionary thrust and we've gotten so far away from that made me kind of be like okay well all these other things that i thought i could understand i don't understand there are just so many other stories out there i have no frame of reference if i didn't even know this really clearly obvious one that crosses like um racial and religious and all like it's just like a human thing if like Mm -hmm. i didn't even know what that story looked like it's really hard to understand all the other things you don't understand. Like you just are just an idiot, essentially.
0: We live in a weird
2: world. <laughs>
0: <Right>? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Isn't, I mean, that's like becoming an adult is just
1: realizing all of the things that you don't know.
2: Totally. Knowing what you don't know. <laughs> totally. Exactly. I think that's perfectly said. I think that's absolutely perfectly said. Yeah. I, I appreciate, I mean, Nicole
0: and I, neither of us are mothers, but I appreciate you talking about that because I know we definitely do have moms listening who are trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to balance it all and I think that there's and you mentioned this and I I just want to continue to drive this point home because I think it's so necessary becoming a mom has made you a harder worker you you've understood time management so much better than you ever did before you're more qualified than you've ever been because you have this whole new set of skills and you're making it work out of necessity and it's so stupid (laughs) that people value moms as you know less qualified or thinking like oh if you're a mom your brain's not going to be in the game you're going to be just Mm -hmm. thinking about your kids all day long but it's clearly made you more skilled and and maybe even more hungry for your work
2: i'm a better artist i'm a better artist i think it's like it's only been three years so it's almost embarrassing to admit how much better <laughs> an artist I am, <laughs> but I am. Um, I think the best the best thing I could have done was, you know, get knocked up earlier. I'd be, I'd be amazing. <laughs> I'd be a fantastic yeah. artist. But, you know, there
1: it is. Emily, was there anything that we hadn't really touched on that you think is important to talk about or any really important experiences
2: that you've had that you would love to share? I think we kind of touched on a lot of them. Desperately learning not to try to be jealous as like its own form. I'm a, a parent preacher, so there's that. <laughs> and I think just kind of like as a fine artist, as kind of a development along my way, work one of the things that comes up a lot or that I kind of like struggle with a lot is like that idea of how you figure out what your work is and that the work that you make or that you enjoy making may be not the work that you like looking at and like kind of coming to terms with that I think is always kind of an interesting conversation like that idea of the work you end up making may not be the work it's the work that you will go and make, no matter how tired you are, it may not be the work that you think you like. I think that's always kind of a constant struggle. I'm a big proponent of being vulnerable in the work and making, and then looking around and kind of supporting other artists who are willing to be vulnerable. So yeah, that kind of covers everything.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been an awesome conversation. And I'm so excited to share this episode with our listeners.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for making the community so much richer. And I mean, I talked a lot about doing community, but like, come on, you guys are like... Really living that. So thank you very much. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so
1: and well, likewise, I mean, you're clearly such a big part of your Seattle community, and it's been really fun talking to you and getting to, to know that scene a little bit um, through your eyes. And thank you for all of the generosity that you share with those around you, too.
0: Excellent. This is such a great conversation. I'm really pumped about it because I think a lot of the motivation with us doing this podcast and your generosity and com- contributing to your community is very similar. Like, I know I'm constantly trying to remind myself to stop comparing my worst moments to other people's highlight reels because it's mm-hmm. just it's bullshit and it's unnecessarily cruel to myself. And I think we all kind of do that to ourselves and it's so badly. it's so important to remember that we all have really rough days and we all have really awesome ones and don't compare your worst day to someone else's best day because it's mm-hmm. just
2: yeah and realistic. like you know like there's always that moment in which you like even when you post something to Instagram like like you know the behind the scenes right yeah comparing that to what somebody else's behind the scenes could look like and be just like okay (laughs) they want to they want to show their best selves too and we should let them (laughs) like you Uh know right yeah oh thank you so much
0: yeah thank you so much this has been awesome i'm really grateful that you came on and that you are making beautiful work and putting it out there and helping your community And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review, because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here.
2: Probably my cat.
0: I wasn't sure if it was yours or mine. What? <laughs> Usually, my cat is, like, crawling across me, like, rubbing up against the microphone. And I'm like, <laughs> Brussels sprout, give us some space.